and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour. My name is Eric Newman, and I am the Gender and Sexuality Editor of the LA Review of Books. I am excited to have in the studio with me today Tom Lutz, the big boss man, my editor-in-chief at the LA Review of Books. Hi, Tom. Eat your vegetables. <laughs> Always full of good advice. <laughs> so this week, Tom has a great conversation with Errol Morris about his new mini-series, Wormwood. Wormwood is a, I guess, a limited series, it's a four-hour, six-part show about Eric Olson. Oh, uh, okay. Who is Eric Olson? Eric Olson is the son of Frank Olson. Frank Olson was a CIA Department of Defense scientist who came flying out a window, a 13th story window in New York City in 1953. Not an aviator. Not an aviator. The report said he either jumped or fell Mm. from the 13th story window. And Eric Olson was 10, 12 years old at the time. And event haunted him. And he has spent his entire life trying to get to the bottom of what happened to his father, why his father either fell or jumped. The story takes a major turn in the 70s when a report comes out about the CIA's use of LSD, experiments with LSD, Okay. and Frank Olson is mentioned in that report, and so all of a sudden there's a new explanation for what happened to him, which is that he was part of an LSD experiment and therefore jumped out a window. And then over time, that story starts to fall apart as well. It's just a, a fascinating, Morris loves obsession. And so he loves obsessive characters of of all stripes. And this son is obsessed with this case and and has the body exhumed. And when he does, he finds things that suggest that this was a CIA hit, had nothing to do with the LSD, Mm. had something to do with chemical and biological warfare, which he was also working on, and enhanced interrogation techniques, which were happening in Eastern Europe at the time. Wow. And so this is in the 50s, right? So- Mm -hmm. um, it's a very, in the middle of the story, William Colby, the ex-director at that point of the CIA, goes missing, goes out on, in his canoe on a lake in New Hampshire, and then never is heard from again, just as this guy is chasing him down to find out why he killed his father. It's a very interesting and odd moment. You know, this is a 60-year-old, 65-year-old event, and yet incredibly prescient about the powers of government and the dark powers of the dark parts of the government. Also a very familiar theme for Morris, right? And, yes. And also, stories yeah. that are very complicated and don't have easy answers. Don't have easy answers. And what? we're not sure at the end, I, and in all sorts of ways we're not sure, but it's just fascinating all the way through. And you can put together the conspiracy theory that gives you the most pleasure in this, <laughs> in this film. And it's on Netflix right now, right? Yes, Okay, great. So readers can listen to this conversation and then watch the film immediately afterwards. And Morris was a pleasure to talk to. Well, you're a big Morris fan, right? I love... Okay, yeah. I love Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. I love Mr. Death. These are films that, unlike this film and the ones that he's most famous for, Mm -hmm. have no recreations in them. This does have actors playing Frank Olson and the other CIA agents. So documentary purists will not like it that much. But I just think he's brilliant. This is one of his brilliant films. Okay, well, let's get right to that conversation. This is Tom Lutz, Editor-in-Chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm here with Academy Award winning, legendary documentary filmmaker Errol Morris, who has returned to the Emerson College studios for the LARB Radio Hour. Thanks so much, Errol, for coming back in. 
Glad to be back. And you're back because you have a new project, Wormwood, which is in selected theaters and on Netflix. And it's a very interesting exploration. Like a lot of Errol Morris films, it has got a number of different narrative strands going through it, a number of different layers of narrative. And so as I tried to figure out exactly how I was going to say what this film was about, I was a bit of a, at a loss. How do you describe it? There's several ways to describe it. One way is just to describe the underlying story, which involves the death of an army scientist who is involved in making biological weapons. This is in the late 40s and early 50s. And just after Thanksgiving, November 1953, he went out a window, Statler Hotel, overlooking the old Penn Station, plunged 13 floors to his death. And the question is, was it a suicide? Was it an accident? Or was he killed? And the original death certificate says he fell or jumped. What in hell does that mean? <laughs> and, and in fact, that's the thing that kind of haunted his son for many years is the yes. question of whether, what that meant. What in hell does that mean? Yeah. His son, Eric Olson, is obsessed with this case, as one might very well be if one's father died under mysterious circumstances. But he's obsessed with it for 60 years, and even until now, trying to figure out exactly what happened. Yes. So one way to talk about what the film is, is the film is the story of Eric Olson's search for the truth of what happened. Think of it like a series of Russian dolls, one inside the other, inside the other. There's certainly Frank Olson's story, what he was doing at Fort Detrick, his involvement with biological weapons in the Korean War. There's also a story about his son, who was at Harvard 22 years later when the Rockefeller Commission report was released by the Ford administration. And the report identified an unnamed army scientist who was surreptitiously dosed by the CIA with LSD. Here we have a lot of acronyms. Mm -hmm. Surreptitiously dosed by the CIA with LSD. And it was claimed that he committed suicide under the influence of drugs. Right. So it was, it's this unintended consequence of the experiment. You know, I knew a lot of people that took LSD, including myself back in roughly those same years, and not that many of us jumped out of windows. But it was, seemed to be a convincing story at the time. I often say that LSD was a red herring. It was designed in part, although I believe he was given LSD, story is far more complicated than just a simple drug suicide. Yes, far more complicated. And I don't want to do any spoilers, um, ah, but it doesn't matter. In a sense, it doesn't. I love the Russian doll image for the way this film works, because my favorite film of yours is Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. Thank you. Which I think of as the only great documentary that's built like a collage. What about Wormwood? Well, <laughs> Wormwood, I think, is more like a set of Russian doll narratives, a narrative inside a narrative inside a narrative. Except that collage plays a very important exactly stylistic right. element and theme Absolutely. throughout Wormwood. Because? There are a lot of becauses here. I don't think there's one, maybe mm -hmm. there's not two, maybe not even just three becauses. Because my protagonist, Eric Olson, got his degree in psychology in Harvard, developing what he called the collage theory, which was using collage as a therapeutic device, 
as a way of understanding people, allowing people to assemble their own collages and interpreting them. And he made his own as well as part of this project. He made many. Yeah. And also the nature of detective work. I was a private detective for years. We're all in some small way detectives because we're all trying to figure out the world around us from bits and scraps of evidence. But a detective is always involved with collage. This piece of evidence, this document, that interview, trying to connect the dots into a seamless whole, Mm. into a picture of the world. Sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. Right. So the investigation itself is a process of making a collage. The film is a collage of the collage. Why not? Yeah. And so it's a set of Russian nesting dolls of collages. Rather than of narratives. And when you put together Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, were you thinking of collage as the form? Probably always thinking of collage. I mean, I love collage. This film, it's interesting that you should mention Fast, Cheap. This was a very, very hard film to make. Maybe impossibly hard. Fast Cheap also was a hard film to make because there was no way of knowing going into it. First of all, what in hell is this? What am I doing? Have I lost (laughs) my mind? Which is quite possible. Maybe I did lose my mind. But taking four stories, four discrete, unrelated stories, and combining them into a narrative combining the stories, combining the imagery around the stories, and on and on and on and on. And it took me a long time. It took me a long time just to figure out how to edit it. I can imagine because it takes a while. I feel like a subject of one of Eric Olson's experiments because I had to watch that film and kept asking myself, what is this film doing? What is it about? I wasn't sure. I'm not sure it wasn't until the second time that I realized that all four stories had something to do with animals. Yeah. That didn't even occur to me the first time through. Because, of course, famously, you had no voiceover. You have no explanation for what it is we're seeing put together in the narrative. I suppose on first viewing, there may not be any rhyme or reason to anything, even though I think there is rhyme and reason. Absolutely. To everything in the story. Also, there are no editorial rules about how you do something like that. And we discovered how to edit it by editing it Mm -hmm. without any assurance that it was even possible to edit it. You know, it's always possible when you do anything. When you're a private detective, it's always possible that the case that you're investigating never comes together. You don't come up with a solution. You're left with an incoherent mess. Right. And in film editing, particularly when you're making something out of such diverse material, the same thing can happen. When we started Wormwood... I kept referencing Fast Cheap, that it was very important at the very beginning of Wormwood for us to understand how many diverse elements were going to be put into play. One of the first cuts that you see is you see a cut between Peter Sarsgaard, who plays Frank Olson in the drama part of Wormwood, and then you see home movies. With Frank Olson, the real Frank Frank Olson, Olson, played by Frank Olson. And the hope, I guess it's a hope, is that you see that all of these strange elements are going to be combined in a way that you have never seen before. I sold this to Netflix as the everything bagel. (laughs) And the way I originally described it 
is I was going to take everything at my disposal and more. I was going to take archival material, both home movies and historical material. I was going to take interviews. I was going to take drama, reenactment, and on and on and on and on and integrate this into one story. And then a lot of the documents that you show us, you actually kind of cut up and make collages out of as well. That's correct. Photographs and documents. Photographs and documents, yeah. I had this little hunch at one point that there's this amazing story about William Colby, director of the CIA, who had a very dramatic moment in the film in terms of what Eric is learning about about what happened to his father. Colby goes out for a little kayak ride on his lake in New Hampshire or wherever it is and disappears, washes up on the shore a week later. And I had this sense that part of you just wanted to go off and do a documentary about William Colby in the middle of this. Yep. (laughs) You got me figured out. Okay. (laughs) Because there's this great mystery about William Colby's death. Was he killed? Did he commit suicide? Was it an accident? Yeah. In many ways, it mirrors the death of Frank Olson himself. Right. It becomes a copycat ambiguity. There's a moment where Eric Olson is asking and doing all these Freedom of Information Act requests and asking for documents, and he asks for the CIA assassination manual. And the person he's talking to says, which one? Yep. Because I've got a stack two feet high of them on my desk. And, And he said, well, I guess whatever was the manual for 1953. He said, oh, yeah, the first one. And hands him the, sends him that pamphlet, and it describes to a T what happened to his father. That the best way to assassinate somebody, the manual said, was throw them out a window. And the best thing to do is whack them on the head before you do it so they're not grabbing at things and making trouble for you. And his father had a huge contusion on his forehead that was not explained by the fall. This was found out after an exhumation of the body and a new autopsy. It was a chilling moment, and it's a film that is not obviously just about this one person. It's about the national security apparatus out of control that we've come to know so well. In short, it's about America. Ouch. The strange circumstances that we find ourselves in. We won World War II, victory against Germany and Japan. And then immediately, the Cold War started, a particularly virulent and nasty war. And part of that was Korea, all but forgotten about. We have no idea about Korea, except we sort of think we don't like Kim Jong-un. But Eric, very near the end of the movie, makes, to me, the central point of the movie. Do we still have a democracy if the government is endlessly lying to us? If... The government is set up in such a way not to tell the truth, but to obscure the truth, to evade the truth. And it's a powerful question, a powerful question in the 50s, and it's a powerful question as we speak. What actually happened to us? And it's something that I hope everybody watching Wormwood will think about. It's a story about us. It's a story about certainly Eric Olson, a story about his father, But it's a story about post-war American history and where we find ourselves now.
You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We will return to our interview with Errol Morris shortly, but first, this week's book recommendation. We are lucky to have John Freeman, editor of Freeman's, in the studio with us to give us a book recommendation. John, what book will you be recommending today? A recent book of poems by Solmaz Sharif called Look. For the past 10 years, she's been plunging through the Department of Defense Handbook Manual of Language, taking terms that have been weaponized by war and renaturing them, basically through a bit of alchemy, using them in elegies and lyrics about her family and bringing imperial language back to her own life, stealing the words back, essentially. And the title, Look, refers to the period by which a landmine is still receptive to influence. And along the way, she has a long elegy to her uncle who died in the Iran-Iraq war. She talks about desire and physicality in a world in which the human body is often used as a kind of commodity to demonstrate the effect of imperial warfare, especially brown bodies, especially people from the Middle East. And although she never writes towards beauty, there are moments of high lyricism where the images of the poems just take your breath away. And it's truly an essential work, I think. There's a kind of rave for erasures right now in the poetic world where people take words out of existing texts and make texts out of them. And she's showing us, to some degree, how erasures are happening right in front of us, even though the words are still there. And I think um, that says everything about the world we live in. I agree. It is a fantastic book. Okay, and has a very apt title, too. So that book, again, is... It's Look, and the author is Solmaz Sharif, and it's published by Grey Wolf Press. Thank you so much, John, and thank you for coming back. I'm so happy to recommend books. That was John Freeman, editor and writer... His most recent collection of essays and short stories and poems is called Freeman's The Future of New Writing. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to Tom Lutz's conversation with Errol Morris. Six chapters. Yes. Right? They're called chapters. Uh, I'm never sure about nomenclature. Yeah. it's But you can have your way with me. It's an an interesting interesting decision. But it's a very good one-sitting experience, I found. Good. Are you assuming that people will binge it and, and watch it all at once? I don't know. I mean, what's interesting about Netflix is that they've always given you the choice. You can sit and watch... X number of episodes, or you can stop and start again. It was so recently finished. I mean, people have mostly seen it not in episodes or in chapters, but they've seen it in theaters. Mm-hmm. And it works, clearly works. The first public screening was at the Telluride Film Festival, and uh, there was a question really very much like what you were telling me about your own experience seeing the film with a group of people for the first time. Are people really going to sit mm-hmm. and watch this whole thing? Or are they going to run screaming out of the room? And the amazing thing for me, it's a gratifying thing for a filmmaker, 
is people stayed. People stayed and watched the whole thing and were engaged by it. I am absolutely unsurprised. It's completely compelling storytelling, completely compelling visually. It's a great film. Well, thank you. The Jeffrey McDonald book. Uh My wife is a big fan of the Jeffrey McDonald book. I'm a fan of the Jeffrey McDonald book. Is that going to be a film? There's some talk about it, yes. Someone has bought the rights, and it may very well become a film. Well, I hope so. And you have a new book coming out as well. As I do. Film, uh, called The Ashtray, University yes. of Chicago Press. What is it? Is it the history of the ashtray? Not so much. No? It starts a story at the Institute for Advanced Study. I was a student at the time at Princeton and involves an ashtray that was thrown at me by Tom Kuhn, who was a professor at the Institute of Advanced Studying at Princeton. And some people say the most influential academic of the 20th century. I would say he could be one of the more, maybe even the most influential academic of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. But if that's true, it's a sorry state of affairs. (laughs) I understand that the two of you did not get along, let's say. We didn't get along, and I find his philosophy utterly loathsome. I think he was a charlatan, a fraud. And in many ways, my book is about truth and the denial of truth. I sometimes think that the structure of scientific revolution, shifting paradigms, all of that nonsense that he created is responsible, not completely responsible, partly responsible for the mess we find ourselves today where people don't trust science, they don't trust anything. Science is just another kind of mythology. Take it or leave it. And you blame Thomas Kuhn for that. Why not? Well, I guess, I mean... People don't think critically about anything. Well, It amazes me that people still think at all. And the fact that these views got traction, I find utterly astonishing. Now, it's been a while since I read it, but I will say that I always thought of it as just a continuation of Jamesian, Persian pragmatism. Or Wittgensteinian understanding of that the frame creates the reality within the frame. I have a line at the very end of the book. It's an appendix, essentially. There's a very famous picture of this high school in Linz, the class. And in that picture, there are two individuals who became quite famous in the 20th century. Do you know about this picture? No. In the picture is Ludwig Wittgenstein and Adolf Hitler. They were in the same class together. It's disputed. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I did not know that. And one of the questions that I ask is, like, who did the greater damage in the 20th century? (laughs) And I say, okay, 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 Okay. it's Hitler, but just think about it. (laughs) Russell wrote this extraordinary obituary for Wittgenstein where he says that for a long time he couldn't decide whether Wittgenstein was an idiot or a genius. And he tells a story. It's interesting that he should pick this story. He tells a story of an argument that he had with Wittgenstein. They're standing in a lecture hall, and there's a question of whether there's a hippopotamus in the room. And Russell says, of course there isn't a hippopotamus in the room. And he walks around, he looks in various closets, 
no hippopotamus. No, there is no hippopotamus in the room. Wittgenstein challenges Russell, saying that it's an assertion that he's not entitled to make. Reading this not so long ago, I was reminded of Donald Rumsfeld Mm. and the idea that that the absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. Um, (laughs) So people can believe whatever they want. Someone tells them philosopher X is great, and they're all too willing to believe it. Mm Mm-hmm. Humanity is a very bad species, let's face it. Our capacity for credulity is unfettered. We believe all kinds of asinine nonsense, or should it just be errant nonsense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We believe all kinds of nonsense, unfettered. And why uh, should this species even be respected? Well, it often is not, right? No, 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 there's yeah. just too much, of, too much respect for humanity. Down with humanity. Thank you. (laughs) I still disagree with you about Thomas Kuhn, but... I'd be perfectly happy to battle it out with you. Yeah, thanks so much. Let me leave you with one thing. All right. In the structure of scientific revolutions, he sets up this stuff about shifting paradigms and so on and so forth. He also tells you that people in one paradigm can't talk to people in another paradigm. In his words, they're radically incommensurable. If you think about it carefully, it's a kind of version of the Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. Um, What it is is an attack on truth at its heart. And my entire book for you, Chicago Press, is about truth and about my belief in truth and the enemies to truth as I see it in the 20th century. I'm very interested in the relationship of this whole set of issues to our very current moment with Trump and his cronies in the White House. And I'm wondering, when you did your film about Robert McNamara and then Donald Rumsfeld, were you hoping that they were the kind of end of some kind of progression towards horribleness in government and that we were going to move on from that? Or did you see this current state of affairs coming? I don't think anybody saw this current state of affairs coming. It's like being in a horrible automobile accident that takes you by surprise. One wishes, I wish, that I saw it coming. I tried very hard to work for the Clinton campaign and was rebuffed many, many, many times. Um, You can call him an enemy of lying, but it's certainly an ironic enemy of lying because because why because mm. he's a liar yeah of course i'm not trying to say that government has always been honest or reliable or even decent but this doesn't seem to be about progressives versus conservatives it seems to be about some reasonable kind of government and batshit craziness mm-hmm And it's scary. It's really hard for me to understand how you live in a country where I find the leadership so utterly deplorable and its values so contrary to what is meaningful to me. And despite the fact that in Wormwood, the deep state, the kind of nasty doings way behind the scenes are exactly what you're exposing in the film— that's been part of the government. Is the problem now that an equally duplicitous 
person is in front of the microphone as well as behind it? That has to be part of it. I often thought of our democracy, I used to call it fig leaf democracy, that it really isn't egalitarian at all, nor does it believe that all people are created equal. But we like to pay lip service to that idea. Mm-hmm. We like to keep up appearance, a semblance of decency, if you like. And there is no semblance of decency anymore. Um, we miss the semblance of decency. I miss fig leaf democracy. Mm. I become friendly with Cy Hirsch as a result of making Wormwood. And we spoke very shortly after Trump was elected. And Cy, who is as cynical as they come, one of the reasons why I like him, Mm -hmm. said, well, you know, in the past, there used to be middlemen. There were the oligarchs and there were the middlemen. Now they're just the oligarchs. Mm. In the film itself, I think Cy Hirsch doesn't come off that well. Has he seen it? He loves it. A lot of people think he does. Uh-huh. Tell me why you think he comes off badly. I thought he seemed... Well, you didn't a, say badly, but you no, said said not it, that not, well. Not that well, yeah. He seemed a little bit peevish in the end about whether he was doing the right thing or not. We should say at the end, he has found something out that he feels in order to protect a source, he cannot tell the son who was so desperate to know what happened to his father. And that's one of the final conversations in the film is about this issue. And it seemed to me that he was not entirely comfortable with that choice and so came off a little uh, peevish. Why should he be comfortable with that choice? One of the things that Sai told me fairly early on is he never liked Citizen Four because when you have someone who is leaking material about the government, as Snowden was leaking material about mm-hmm. the government, you don't out him. You don't make him into a public figure. You keep him in place and you keep him leaking right. because he becomes an essential, valuable source of information about the government and what the government is doing. Uh, when Sai says, you don't reveal the names of your sources or talk about your sources in such a way as people can figure out who those sources are, he's telling you a lot of things. He's telling you how journalism in the modern age has to be or is practiced. And he's also reminding us the cost of revealing the identity of a source. In the case of Snowden, correct me if I'm wrong, he's now living in Moscow. Mm-hmm. And, and is doing, not doing none of us any good, yes. Willing to return to the United States because he will be doubtlessly prosecuted. And he no longer has access to valuable information. Do I believe that Sai is right? You betcha. And I support him in what he's doing. Also, Wormwood is not over yet. I delivered a six-part series to Netflix, but there's more to come. It's an investigation which I do not believe is over with. I think there is a deeper story that is going to come out. Fantastic. And I hope I'm the person to tell it. Fantastic. Well, will you come back and talk to me about the ashtray once it's published? And then we'll duke it out then. I'd be happy to do it. (laughs) Thanks so much, Errol Morris. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Errol Morris, Wormwood, is in selected theaters and on Netflix. (laughs) 
You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour.